Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Once again, as a reminder, if you're not listening to this podcast via an app on your phone, um, please try subscribing in your, whatever podcast listening app you happen to use so that new episodes are downloaded automatically. And again, we also encourage everyone who's listening to write reviews and to share the podcast or send us feedback or whatever. Uh, we always enjoy the feedback, good and bad. So feel free. <laughs> Either way, though, we I think we like the good feedback a little better than the bad. But either way, we'll take any of it. So on to today's podcast. Uh, a few years back, uh, a friend of mine had told me that I absolutely needed to check out a book uh, by an IP and employment law professor from the University of San Diego named Orly Lobel called Talent Wants to be Free, uh, which covered a topic that I'm fascinated by and I've written about and spoken about many times over the past 20 years on the value to innovation, um, on the fact that ideas and people can flow freely between different organizations, leading to the necessary mix of ideas and implementation and general genius that, that drives innovation forward. Um, uh, Professor Lobel's book was a, a really fantastic take on all of that, and it's been one that I've recommended many times uh, since since first reading it a few years back. So I was especially excited a few months ago uh, to um, I'm sorry, not a few months ago, but a few weeks ago to have Professor Lobel's new book uh, show up at my door, uh, completely uninvited. <laughs> I didn't didn't know uh, that there was a new book out that she had written a new book. Um, and I had not received a promotional copy of her earlier book. Um, so kudos to the marketing folks at her publisher, Norton, for figuring out that I might be interested in the new book. Uh, the new book is called You Don't Own Me. And it's an entire book about a single lawsuit, uh, one that went on for almost a decade and which we covered uh, pretty extensively on TechDirt uh, as it went through a whole bunch of twists and turns. Uh, the whole story is really, really fascinating. It's so fascinating that it would make a really gripping book. And that's exactly what Lobel has now written. Uh, the case was called Mattel vs. MGA Entertainment. And it was an incredibly fierce knockdown legal brawl over questions concerning ownership of the idea or concepts of dolls. Uh, Mattel famously is the uh, company that owns the Barbie doll, uh, a doll that has absolutely dominated the market among young girls. Uh, and decades had gone by without any serious challenger in that market. Uh, that is until MGA came out with its Bratz line of dolls uh, in the early 2000s, and they caught on like wildfire. Uh, the issue, though, is that the designer of Bratz, a guy named Carter Bryant, had worked for Mattel before partnering with MGA, and Bryant had come up with the idea for Bratz during that time, though there was at the time, some dispute over whether or not he did so while he was on leave from Mattel. Either way, Mattel went 
to war over this. It's the only way to describe it, I think. And the courts were kind of all over the place. At one point, uh, Bratz dolls were banned. Um, and at another point, uh, Bratz was ordered to, uh, uh, MGA was ordered to turn over all future plans for Bratz dolls to Mattel. And then later rulings kind of flip-flopped entirely and, and suddenly Mattel had to pay MGA for violating trade secrets and all sorts of stuff. The case went all over the place. Anyways, the whole case is, is a fascinating story to follow. And, uh, Lobel has written a, a real page turner of a book, uh, getting into the history and details and all sorts of background information. And, um, and, and so I'm really thrilled to have her on the podcast with us to talk about the new book and some of the concepts that it discusses. So, uh, Professor Orly Lobel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. That was a great introduction. <laughs> I, I try not to uh, give away anything about the outcomes, and you did too, because uh, as you say, it's it's such a roller coaster of a case and twists and turns, and so no no real spoilers about the the absolute ending. Yeah, yeah, no, I wanted to to, to keep that. You know, it's, it's it's worth finding out on your own, um, sort of how it all plays out, and and each of the twists and turns, like each one feels crazier than the next. But but let me let me start by just you know, you know this is this is an entire book on a single case, um, and obviously there are lots of really really interesting lawsuits, and you know we try and write about a whole bunch of different interesting lawsuits. Um, but what made you decide that this particular lawsuit was worth like a full book treatment and, and you know, that it was worth uh, going so deep on, on a single lawsuit? So I was following the case, uh, just like you know, Tech Dirt and um, all of Southern California and really uh, the, the, the whole country was looking at different points of the case and, and sort of relating it to a lot of these questions that I asked in Talent Wants to be Free about who owns our ideas, who owns creativity, can people compete with their former employers, um, why do we have concentrated markets, and the case just became, for me, a story that had to be told on its own, um, and especially because it's about something that we all have sort of recognize and grew up with. So really, it's the story is about our toy industry, our entertainment industries, um, our cultural icons. So there's just, you know, no girl in the United States and around the world that doesn't recognize Barbie and really no boy, uh, woman, man who, who hasn't seen her. And, and statistically, actually, Mattel says that every... American girl owns, uh, on average, nine Barbies oh <laughs> throughout God. her childhood. <laughs> and um, there's lots of incredible statistics about uh, what kind of influence she's had all over the world, uh, how many Barbies are sold around the world uh, and have been sold for, for the past six decades. Um, every second, you know, there's a Barbie that's being sold. And, um, and, and in fact, uh, yes, it starts from a single case, from the Mattel versus MGA case. Um, but it's also uh, that when I started digging deeper, I found all these other cases that Mattel launched. And it really became much bigger than that, just this one case. It became about um, a conglomerate that uses courtroom drama to maintain its market dominance. And, you know, how, how does intellectual property and how do... Um, 
does litigation and all these corporate strategies of marketing and consumer psychology, all of those, how do they interact with what we end up as consumers, as, as parents, as, you know, people living in this world having as our uh, products and brands and, and kind of things we play with. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's a really interesting situation because this is one where, you know, when people aren't, um, you know, really, you know, in deep on these issues and like intellectual property being just sort of one, but, but even like the employment law aspect of it, um, you know, a lot of these things feel really, um, obvious to people until they start, you know, thinking through the details and like, you know, I think that's, that's part of what this, this book sort of uncovers is, is how complicated all these things are. And, and, you know, when people talk about like intellectual property law and being necessary to incentivize kinds of innovation, like, you know, that's a story that a lot of people hear and, and understand and, and, and believe. And in some cases, you know, certainly makes sense. But then you read about stories where, you know, it's sort of being used as like this, this, you know, weapon, you know, like this sledgehammer to basically stop any, any kind of, you know, what, what most people would consider legitimate competition um, and sort of blocking it all out of the market. And it, it's, it's really sort of a perspective changer. Exactly. So we see increasingly, I think in every market, we see these expansive ideas about, what intellectual property is, and we sort of forget what it was initially made to do and, and, and kind of the goals that are at the basis of these pieces of legislation. And it starts feeling like there's something natural about owning ideas, uh, that they're property just like any other property. And so we see these campaigns about, uh, you know, comparing um copying in all forms as piracy and theft um, without really stopping for a moment and seeing what is what are the actual outcomes of you know all these lines that we're constantly drawing um, are we really promoting progress in arts and sciences are we promoting new entry and competition and uh, more diversity in, in what we have as in the consumer markets um, or are we in, in this perverse way, stopping progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think a lot of that does, does come clear in, in, in this book and sort of like, you know, laying out things. And, you know, part of what's so incredible about this case is just like, you know, how much, you know, Mattel in particular, I mean, both sides ended up spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, which is fairly incredible when you think about it, you know, in, in a single legal case battling over, you know, dolls, you know, obviously, you know, hugely important and, and influential dolls, but, but still something feels weird, <laughs> but, but, but there's this element of it where it's just like, it, it shows, you know, to what degree a company like Mattel, which has, you know, this sort of dominant position in the market will use those laws and the ability to, to bring really, um, uh, powerful lawsuits, you know, to try and stop any, any competition. Um, and, and so it, it feels like, you know, I asked you up, up at the top, basically like why this case, but you know, part of what my thinking is, and I'm, you know, reading into your reasoning, but like part of my thing is like, this case is such a quintessential example of how damaging, you know, the, the sort of, uh, 
overarching concept of ownership can be towards like actual competition in the market or actual innovation in the market. And and to me, that's that's why this case is is um, is such a good example of that. And you know why we certainly covered it so much, and why you know probably part of the reason why why you found it to be such a such a good topic for for a book. Um, do do you think well? <laughs> do you think that 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 you know Mattel thought this was going to be sort of a, an easier case that MGA would kind of roll over? I do think that they thought it would be easier, but the surprising thing about it is that they uh, time and again think that they're going to win in court, and they end up losing a lot of the time. Um, they go after artists, they go after musicians, they go after um, filmmakers, and anybody who's an entrepreneur, um, you know, potential competitor that seems to threaten the, their brand, the image of Barbie, the, their, their trademark um, to, you know, former employees, as in, in this case. I think that you're absolutely right that for me, this case is a terrific example of what's going on in the markets. But what I want to emphasize is that it's not unique in the sense that there is there's a lot of that happening in every industry and that's why the case is really not just about this you know one corporation and its questionable decision making and irrationalities and and corporate ethics but really um it's it's sort of showing how we're we're expanding on um what we've thought the bargain was with intellectual property what we thought it was doing the kind of work, you know, positive policy on innovation that we were trying to achieve. And also um, what I call um, the under the radar expansion of intellectual property through contract. So what's what was fascinating about this case is that it really starts with a single person and uh, an employee at Mattel with a generic contract that he signs at the beginning of his hiring. And again, I want to emphasize that Carter Bryant, this in, uh, this designer, was really not unique in signing this contract because these are standard contracts that appear, they surface now in every single industry, in all, all these positions, different kinds of jobs. Um, and I, I've been doing a lot of research just looking at these developments in, in markets, and it's just clear that... Um, even though, as you say, like we don't really think about this in our daily lives, who owns it, ideas, whether we can move on to a new job, whether we can invent something new and, and then compete with um, a former employer, we're actually all affected by this. And the, the numbers in litigation are really on the rise. Yeah. And, and to some extent, I mean, that goes back to your previous book, where you know there have been all these discussions and and studies about like um you know the, the question of non compete agreements right and and this idea that um you know and there've been a, a bunch of different studies done that have basically showed that you know at, at least part of the reason why California developed such innovative economies uh, multiple innovative economies certainly um has to do with the fact that non-compete agreements are effectively considered unenforceable right so that leads to you know a much more free flow of individuals you know between different companies which with it come 
the free flow of ideas, which tends to lead to more innovation, um, and also enables, you know, if somebody is at a company and feels that they're, you know, unable to, to do the brilliant thing that they think they can do to, to either go um, start a new company or to join up with others. And, and, you know, we have tons and tons of stories historically of that happening. I mean, the, the, you know, the entire semiconductor industry is sort of based on, on the famous story of, of was referred to as the traitorous eight, you know, all these guys who left, uh, Shockley semiconductor to form Fairchild semiconductor. And then a bunch of those guys left to form Intel and, you know, and, and you have all these people sort of spreading out and, and not just the people moving, but the ideas moving with them. And if you have a situation where the former employer as, you know, as in the Mattel case could, could sue or, you know, create contracts, whether they're, um, you know, non-compete agreements or, or other forms of contracts to block that you actually lose that ability for for the ideas to flow uh, and not just the people to to move jobs right yeah so all of that it has been um a fascinating area of my research and as you say i wrote a whole book talent wants to be free that won a bunch of awards uh with the, this argument that california has won out by not enforcing non-competes and that we need to take really seriously this idea of talent mobility as contributing to regional growth, to economic development, to innovation. Um, it's been a really um, great time to, to be thinking about this because um, there's been more and more media attention on the non-competes issue. Um, there was uh, recently some exposés, there were exposés about even practices in Silicon Valley that are questionable, um, yep. where um, even though we don't enforce non-competes, um, we know that um, some of the big tech companies had these do not touch agreements to the gentlemen's agreements not to <laughs> cold call. Yeah, right. and that's, I mean, that's an uh, anti-competitive, antitrust violation uh, per se, and, and there were huge... Um, huge, huge settlements on, on uh, with class actions against these companies and the federal antitrust division uh, launched uh, robust investigations. What was also really exciting for me was that last year um, I got a call. I was actually traveling abroad. I was in Berlin and on my way to Tel Aviv. And I got a call from the White House. Um, I, I like saying this. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll answer that one. And, yeah. and they... Um, I was invited by the president, President Obama, at the time. It was, um, it was August 2016. I was invited to come to speak about Talent Wants to Be Free, about my book and my research, um, at the White House with representatives from the Treasury Department, from the Department of Labor, from the Department of Justice, and um, from the president's policy team to really think about how can we emulate the Californian model um, across, you know, the different states and, and helping innovation policy in that way. And um, after that meeting, I became part of a working group, a White House working group on the issue. And in October 2016, so this was one of the last things that the previous administration did, um, there was a president's call for action to the states to really reduce the, the usage of non-competes hmm. and to pass bills that would be some closer to what California does, and to go after companies that are overreaching. Um, so all of this, you know, these have been good developments, but what 
um, You Don't Own Me, my new book, and the, the Mattel case show is exactly what you said before, that there are other ways to de facto reach that kind of non-compete and that chilling effect against employee mobility. And in You Don't Own Me, it really all starts with a contract in California that is enforceable, although it's questionably enforceable. And, and right. one of the things that um, it becomes really, you know, a huge issue in, in the litigation is how to interpret these contracts is a, an assignment agreement where an employee signs up, you know, he comes in first day of uh, his job, he signs an agreement that says that any idea, any design, any improvement, any um, kind of innovation, and, and, and there's these words, whether patentable or non-patentable, whether copyrightable or non-copyrightable, so very, very expansive. Any such thing is um, belongs is assigned and belongs to um, his employer. And what that means, in fact, and what this has meant in, in the Mattel case is that employers can say that even um, things that you've thought about during your time off from, from, from the job, um, during the weekends and nights, you know, you're, you're at your home, you're, you're a creative engineer or a designer, an artist, whatever you are, um, even that time, was claimed in the, in this lawsuit to be the company's time um, in the sense of owning ideas and even ideas that were clearly ideas that would never have been developed by that corporation are claimed to be uh, now owned by the corporation just by virtue of this very, very expansive contract. And, and again, the fact of that means that employees are really at risk of moving on in that same industry and trying to innovate and, and create something new. Yeah. And I think that's important. I mean, you know, the, the entire point of this lawsuit was obviously to take out a competitor, right? There was no, there was no desire on the part of Mattel to have, you know, have brought the sort of Bratz line of dolls to market. That was, you know, they, they just wanted no, no competition. Right, so this, you know, the, the sort of standard arguments that people make about intellectual property and and all sorts of stuff, don't, you know, don't much make sense <laughs> in in this in this context because it was clearly designed to sort of kill this this market or kill the competition rather than you know because they they claim that they would have brought it to market. Uh, um, one of the th right, so one of the things that I do in in the book and I did as as part of the research of the book. Um, is go behind the scenes to memos that, you know, internal mm -hmm. memos and internal uh, conversations that were held in, in these two corporations and um, this you know, publicly held, very established conglomerate Mattel and then the uh, privately held, uh, you know, upstart that is owned by a, an immigrant uh, entrepreneur. And you see how they think about what kinds of ideas they would develop and what they would uh, really bring to market. One of the really surprising things that I found, um, it's, maybe it's not surprising once you start thinking about Barbie's dominance, but um, it turns out that Mattel talks about cannibalization and mm. uh, this idea of not being cannibals of their own products. Um, and it's exactly what you said before that they, you know, they did not want to develop 
uh, a bratty doll. They didn't want to develop something that would compete with Barbie because they were, Barbie was the only doll in town. You know, she, she stood on her pedestal and she was selling in the billions and, um, she had over 90% of the market share in, in, in this industry. And so there was really, I, I mean, every simple, um, economic model will, will show that there's really no incentive if you have that kind of market dominance to, um, create or, you know, to cannibalize your own products and your own comp- competitive market market. You don't want to, um, sell something else that then would, you know, t- chop and take right. away that market share. And that's why we, that's why we have competition policy. That's why we have antitrust laws. And one of the, I think things that we, I hope the reader comes out with um, when they read You Don't Own Me is that competition laws should go beyond um, this idea of how do we not have monopolies or um, what is price fixing. There's, there are other ways to sort of fix the market. Um, and, and part some of them are using that sledgehammer of litigation, as you say, and um, using intellectual property and using these contracts that are problematic um, to control markets and to concentrate them. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that that we certainly talk about and is, you know, obviously a really popular concept, especially in Silicon Valley, is just the whole idea of like, you know, disruptive innovation or the innovator's dilemma, Clayton Christensen's concepts. And, and you know, and, and part of the, the question that people have around that is, you know, the cannibalization of, um, you know, of, of different markets tends to come from places where you don't expect it. Um, and, you know, sometimes the sort of recommendation is to actually, you know, cannibalize your own market, right? I mean, you know, uh, here Intel is sort of famous for this, you know, sort of constantly um, recognizing the trends and trying to get ahead of them, not always successfully, but sometimes more, certainly more successfully than other companies, and actually being able to, to, to do exactly that, where it's interesting to see sort of, you know, and, and Mattel is certainly not unique in this, um, to have a dominant company sort of recognize its own position, and then just do everything to try and avoid cannibalizing its own market, even though, you know, some people think that, that you should. But the, the, the issue there is always, you know, whether or not you're going to have real competition. If you don't think you're ever going to have real competition, then you have no incentive to innovate on your own in a way that might cannibalize, you know, why you're dominant in the market. And I think that this case sort of, you know, is, is such a, again, sort of such a quintessential example of, of how that works in practice, where they felt so strongly that they have such a strong, you know, legal basis that they can use these laws to sort of beat any competition into submission um, that, you know, that, that they don't innovate and they don't, don't do anything new. Right. Um, and part of it is that they, they did think that they're innovating, but they were innovating in a very <laughs> narrow and not very exciting sure. way. So um, it's not that they weren't introducing new products. I mean, Barbie has held, yep. uh, you know, thousands of jobs and uh, has <laughs> right. had all these, uh, um, I mean, Mattel, I, part part of the book um, at a later point goes back to the history of uh, Mattel marketing and advertising and and they were actually genius in um, really being one of the leaders in merchandising and um, how to, you know, have all these accessories that yep. girls and, and parents had to buy uh, every year and, you know, have all these uh, 
friends of Barbie and just expanding right. the world, you know, the Barbie world. So it, it, it was a very, very lucrative and, and they were innovating in that sense. They were also sensing that there were issues in, in changing preferences and tastes of, of this, this consumer market of these, uh, young kids. Um, and, and what's, what's interesting is that they, in that setting of being a big corporation that became very bureaucratic, you know, it starts out being very, very um, innovative and, and different. And, you know, like it's, I think, again, it's, I think the story is representative of a lot of startups turned very big corporations that sort of lose their innovative edge. Um, they, you can see how they start stagnating in terms of, introducing new brands and introducing, um, you know, innovation that is really in touch with market realities. Um, the, the other interesting thing is that I think they get so caught up with protecting Barbie and Barbie's image of this all American, very clean, very, um, it, we have to say it, you know, very perfect white American, right. Um, maybe in their mind, asexual um, woman that they, again, you can see corporations that should be rational, making all kinds of irrational and problematic <laughs> decisions, uh, you know, right. wanting, wanting to control the message, um, getting very, very fearful from anything that challenges or is a critique. Uh, so they sue an artist that positions Barbie in like a compromised right. <laughs> position or, or um, they get worried about claims that, uh, you know, Ken is gay, <laughs> Barbie's um, boyfriend. So there's, there's a lot of that, um, you know, cultural interaction with this corporation that's about profit, but it's also controlling our culture and it's not reacting fast enough to cultural shifts and how, you know, how, how we really want to see the world and how, you know, what the world looks like. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I mean, these are the questions that I kind of get into the, in the book. It's interesting to think of whether um, there was something in, in that setting in that uh, innovative or non-innovative environment that prevented, um, you know, brats from being introduced into the world. And then you had to have that kind of underdog, this, you know, immigrant, very fiery, um, very spirited entrepreneur who buys the idea from this shy designer, former employee of Mattel and just runs with it and, and knocks Barbie off her pedestal. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, even, right. I mean, even just the comparison between, you know, Bratz dolls and, and Barbie dolls. And, and actually, I mean, for people who don't know, I, I mean, I think you know, most people listening to this would certainly be familiar with Barbie, but they may not be familiar with Bratz. So do you want to describe sort of, uh, what the basis of Bratz dolls even were in the first place? Yeah, so Carter Bryant, the designer for, for Barbie, he um, he was a gay designer who dreamed of being a fashion, uh, high fashion designer, but he takes a job at Mattel. And like many others, he just becomes sort of tired of, of Barbie's very perfect, clean, vanilla um impossibly, you know, um, you know, it, it just unrealistic body <laughs> right. image. Um, there are, there are all these studies about, you know, if, if, uh, 
Barbie was real, she would actually tip over right. because of her uh, unrealistic proportions. Um, and he, so, so Bratz in his mind is a doll that's just more reflective of our bodies, um, of our diverse, you know, multi-ethnic worlds. Um, Mattel over the years had introduced some um, diversity in, in the Barbie dolls, but it did it sort of uh, the way I, I describe it in the book, um, taking one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bratz dolls are really a group of dolls that are, to begin with, they're multi-ethnic, um, they're uh, much more um, sort of empowered, sassy, their whole look is edgier, um, and this is why they became such a an amazing hit in, when they came out in the beginning of uh, the 2000s. Uh, because there was this taste of let's let's have something different that's just this is what girls want these days and maybe this is also what uh, parents more, feel more comfortable with introducing their uh, girls to although with both dolls there's been you know a lot of critique and questioning sure. of why are to begin with why are girls playing with sexualized um, you know <laughs> grown grown women uh, made into dolls um, but but that becomes really interesting, you know. All of this battle, um, it's basically in, in these corporations, these grown men who are inventing what <laughs> we're playing with. And right. and I mean, what you asked me why I wanted to tell this particular story. There are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that the characters in the book are so colorful. It it became to me obvious that these um, executives were almost like. Uh, life imitating art they were personifying <laughs> the dolls that they themselves were marketing so you know we had the, the mattel corporation being very um you know american uh very straight lace <laughs> very formal didn't want to show up to court you know there's there's some of the 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 scenes the courtroom scenes i reveal how um the the CEO at the time becomes so upset that he even has to sit um, in court and and be part of it and kind of he didn't want to talk to the media to the press um, and we have on the other hand um, this very outspoken um, Iranian American who uh, founds MGA and is very very happy to talk to anybody who asks him and he sat down with me. Um, for a couple of hours to talk about his sort of rags to riches story and how he feels. And he feels very strongly about all these competitors. And he's been uh, involved in a lot of lawsuits. Um, and um, it's, there's almost, yes, there's almost like the, the dolls that are battling it out are doing it through <laughs> these right. characters, these real, real men. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it it is it's a, I mean the whole thing is is really fascinating and um again like just just as a, a general story uh, it's fascinating but obviously if you're really interested in in ideas around intellectual property and and competition in general it's just that much more it's a very very colorful story um you know even if you you know and depending on our listeners some people might immediately think you know a, a book about a lawsuit would be interesting <laughs> but, but some of them might not and and i'm i'm 
telling you that it's interesting whether or not you think a book about a lawsuit is interesting just you know all, all the backstory and and the characters and 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 everything and you know outside of the dolls themselves um it's it's such an interesting case and such an interesting and and um and and that doesn't even get into you know the whole like back and forth that that um, you know, that I mentioned up, up front, like, you know, the, I mean, I still think, you know, one of the craziest points in the case is this point where, where a court basically tells MGA to hand over, you know, all future plans that they had for, for, um, for the Bratz dolls. And, the, you know, at the time, I think I'd written something, uh, you know, specifically saying this, like, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, even, even if you were to go so far as to say that, um, you know the the designs that that Brian had put together. The initial designs had been property of Mattel, which was already sort of a questionable assumption. Um, you know the idea that all the future work and everything that had been done since then, at this point, you know, almost a decade in, I think um, that those should all belong to Mattel seemed, you know, like a very strange interpretation <laughs> of the law. Um, yeah, it's a wrong interpretation of the yes. law, right? And <laughs> I'm glad that you're pointing this out because, again, you're kind of uh, making me think, why why this case? And there's so many um, responses to this. One of the things that is unique about this case is that it's tried twice and mm -hmm. it's tried with a different jury, a different um, set of attorneys and a different judge each time, but the same facts. And this is this really enables kind of the reader to see how much these personalities in the courtroom too matter to the outcomes um, and and these really important questions that we ask about the scope of copyright, the, the interpretation of contract, uh, you know, ownership of ideas, unjust enrichment, as you say, and the consequences of um, what if there was a seed of an idea that was improperly taken. Um, what does that mean? Does, does it mean that you now uh, hold the entire empire of somebody else's uh, developments and, you know, investment? Or does it mean something else? And so the, the, there's a lot there where um, there's, there's one chapter where um, Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals steps in and he's sort of the savior there of, um, right. of the brand. And, and this is become really interesting in the past couple of days. Uh, I don't know if you saw that yeah. um, Judge Kaczynski is now the subject of a lot of uh, questions about his um, work with clerks, um, uh, accusations of uh, sexual harassment and improper conduct. And um, it, for me, it was fascinating to really also look at into the judiciary and to kind of the personality of this important judge. And he has these brilliant um, ideas about copyright and the extent of intellectual property and he's a libertarian and I go into I, he, he also sat with me to talk about you know how he saw the case and and how he sees you know kind of the role of the judge in these um, cases and I, I think you can get some insight into how a lot of these questions connect to, you know kind of personality wise worldview um, these questions about speech and and the scope of of ownership of ideas they it it becomes a little messy um, to sort of untangle the the judge from their judgments right yeah yeah and yeah. it's it's getting a these new twists um, the other thing um, 
it reminds me of is that, you know, one, one of the things that has been really um, a motivating um, issue for, for me to write about uh, this case, uh, but, but you don't know me and, and about Talent Wants to Be Free is, as we've talked about, the ability to leave your employer. But yeah. the other thing that is, I think, the the other side of the, the same coin is the ability to speak out against your employer. Um, yeah. And so all of these contracts that we're, we're signing, um, the innovation assignment agreements, the NDAs, um, the, um, the non-competes, all of those have these really important effects on not just, you know, what do you do if you're unhappy and whether you can stay in that industry and either found your own company or move to a competitor, um, but also whether uh, employees are likely to blow the whistle, to report unlawful behavior, to report, you know, sexual harassment, which is a, yep. a huge issue right now. And it's really, this is what I said before, is like the, the below the, the beneath the radar questions that I think that, you know, we, I think a lot of us have an idea of how patent law works, you know, why we have patents, you know, when do they go too far? Should we, you know, allow businesses to patent business models and software, right. things like that. Those have been for a long while, they've been at the focus of a lot of our public debates. But I think these, um, you know, very um, expansive contractual clauses have not been in in our you know have not taken enough of our attention up to now so uh, this is yeah. what i wanted to do is really make us think about all of uh these effects of of the contracts that we routinely sign yeah yeah no and i think that's a that's a really good point and you know it's something that we certainly see whenever you know in all different aspects of of intellectual property law you know the the sort of uh, when there are changes or, or adjustments to those laws or, or, you know, based on either regulatory changes or case law or whatever, um, you know, the the lengths and extent that that organizations will often go through to sort of bring things back to the way that they want it. Um, you know, and this is you know, potentially slightly off topic, but, you know, we're seeing all these examples now of like, um, you know, there have been a lot of changes to patent law recently and like there's this crazy situation um, very recently where where organizations are um, sort of doing this fake sale of patents to uh, Native American tribes, um, basically just to get out of the jurisdiction right. of, of, yeah. of the, the, the uh, uh, patent review board, basically. And and you just see these things over and over again. And, and sort of the contract issue is is one that I, you're, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right that that doesn't get as much attention, but is this way of sort of writing effectively private laws, you know, and, and there are some limitations and things there. And, and you know, the right to contract and, and is an important right, certainly. Um, but if that's being used in a way that is anti-competitive or dangerous or, or harmful to overall public policy, that's something that should be, you know, people should pay attention to it. And, and yet, you know, for the most part, I don't think we do. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you see these just, as you said, the, these attempts to find the loopholes in, in every area of law uh, where something is closed off. And, and um, you see this in California with the non-competes and, yep. you know, how do we create an alternative mechanism that will reach the same results of not letting people start their own <laughs> business? Um, right. So you see this time and again. Um, it, in in the end of the day, you know, I think it, a lot of it is about 
corporate ethics and um, yeah. at, where do you put your energy as a corporation? We talked about, you know, the likelihood of innovating and, and creating the kind of next steps, the next building stones of um, whatever we're doing, of knowledge, of, of technology, of science, of art. Um, and it you just kind of see how a lot of times it just seems easier to get the competition out of the way to um, just maintain the, the strong position that you already have, the dominant position, and, and not put in efforts uh, in, in, in doing something really important and, and new. Um, I think you see this again in every industry. So, you, you know, you talked about Silicon Valley. Um, you can even trace, you know, their, I, I, think, I tend to think about Steve Jobs in the 70s versus toward the end of his life. Right. Yeah. And you see this kind of same dynamic where there's, you know, such a great innovator, the, you know, the greatest innovator um, in, in those decades um, and, and Apple being such a startup. And, you know, he says, steal from everybody the best ideas and, and right. we'll just do something. We'll just do it the best. And then you mentioned how much Mattel spent on litigation. Um with Apple too, you can you actually see the yep. studies showing that at some critical point, it's just like flips. They're investing <laughs> more in litigation and going after their competitors and patenting and you know and stopping innovation, um, where you know that more than they they're spending on their R and D uh, yeah. arms. Uh, so so that kind of flip is really, I think, symptomatic of um, when when there is a dominant position and and there's less. Um, likelihood of, you know, having um, just new entry and, and the, the right incentives in place to to do the best for, for the these creative markets. Um, and yeah, I think it's just everything comes out. Um, one of the other things that really comes out is that, um, and you kind of alluded to it, is that um, a lot of companies want to stop competitors from doing what they actually have been doing for years against <laughs> their right. competitors. So, um, you know, sort of like, you know, careful what you're doing with these <laughs> tools, because um, in this in this case, you see this as, again, um, something that happens to companies a lot where if they start a battle, um, you know, you have to dig two graves, right? Like, so you, <laughs> right. they're starting to find all this dirt about about Mattel throughout the litigation, about uh, economic espionage, about um, how they engage in anti-competitive, you know, um, price fixing maybe with, uh, with the retail industry, mm -hmm. um, uh, all kinds of questionable decision-making about, recalls or no recalls, you know, and their production practices in, 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 yeah. in China and, and so forth. So everything is bigger than just the, you know, this thing <laughs> that they think that the case is about. Um, and it becomes, it, it gets out of their control. You, you know, you asked if yep. they thought they're going to win. Yeah, they thought they're going to win and they thought they're going to crush. And a lot of times, you know, the big companies win just by virtue of being big and having being able the, to the, out, outlast. Yeah, right, yeah. right. It's having the small army of, uh, of attorneys and it's so costly. Even when you win, yeah. it's sort of the other message. You end up losing just such a long, you know, 
time and effort and, and resources of around these cases that, um, you know, we have to raise questions about the, you know, the, 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 um, productivity and the yep. um, logic of, of using the courtroom in, in these contexts. Yeah, yeah, no, sort of the, the price of litigation is, is something that's, that, that we've certainly written about and this is a really interesting topic just because it's, you know, uh, you know, we certainly talk about a lot in the free speech uh, space where, you know, the ability to bring, you know, what's referred to as slap lawsuits, which, you know, right. even if they know that they can't win, they just know that the, the lawsuit itself is so burdensome. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, this, the, this whole situation is really, really interesting and, and, um, you know, I think, you know, the example of apples is, is certainly an interesting one. I mean, and, and I had made reference to this, I think even in writing about the Mattel case, you know, as an example, you know, there's a similar situation with the founding of Apple, which was that, you know, Steve Wozniak designed the first Apple computer when he was employed at HP right. and they decided they didn't want to do anything with it. And so he went off and started a company, you know, imagine kind of what would have happened if you had the same sort of, you know, Mattel MGA situation, um, you know, it could have killed Apple in, in the early days. And of course, you know, now Apple's gotten litigious and, you know, there's, there's sort of a, you know, perhaps a, a sequel <laughs> <laughs> book to be written, um, now about the, the, um, uh, Way, uh, Waymo Uber case that's yeah. going on now in terms of, you know, where there's a whole bunch of other issues related to that. But again, as a case of somebody leaving the employment of one company going to another and there are questions about trade secrets and patents were in there originally and, and questions about, you know, employment and, and certainly appears that there was some pretty sneaky, <laughs> questionable activity going on, but, but still there are these underlying questions about, you know, switching jobs and innovation and how does that work? Um, and yeah. you know, what, what things, you know, that are in your brain, can you bring with you versus what things, you know, would you have in digital form or, or whatever? Absolutely. Uh, so I don't know if I'll write a book about OMO and, and <laughs> Uber, but I have written a short, uh, article for the Harvard business review about that case. Oh, um, cool. yeah. Um, it was published, a, I think a couple of months ago. Um, and, and I say exactly that, that, uh, you know, we, we should allow people to move, um, but we they can't take trade secrets. I've never <laughs> said that, you know, that talent wants to be free, but like, you know, what is really secrets also wants to be free. No, that that's exactly the thing about intellectual property in general, that we have to make sure that we're drawing the right lines and that we're understanding um, what is the real value of things that um, should ma be maintained secret or, or the property of a company, the things that there was real investment in developing that are not known, you know, outside the company. Um, but you see kind of this push to forget those lines and, and to define the whole world of right. all information and all knowledge and all kind of cognitive skills and, and network as as part of that wealth that's, that's proper that's the property that's internalized and, and is not like, you know, in the commons. Uh, so, so that's really, uh, I think it's a super important argument and, and exactly like you say, these, these pop up in the, in these meteoric, uh, you know, huge litigation moments and, <laughs> in, in every industry and, and they define what, you know, yeah. how fast are we going to have, um, other, 
toys and other brands to and other options for for children to play with and how fast are we going to get self-driving cars <laughs> it's like right. all of that it it becomes really really important and you know one of the things that um i think people I, I, are very easily um recognizing that our tech is really important self-driving cars you know that those are you know so disruptive um as you say, like, you know, disruptive technologies that um, really change our worlds. But one of the things that I wanted um, to make clear in You Don't Own Me, and I think that it does come out, um, is how important play is and how formative these yeah. cultural icons are in our world and in our, you know, in our gender relations and our images of womanhood and our race relations and, and just our play, you know, just uh, how important yeah. it is to have options and to have the kind of right set of, uh, of games and, um, yeah. and interactions. And, and, and I, you know, I think that there's really problematic to have a pink shelf versus a, a blue shelf for, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I reveal in the book that, um, I became a really early critic of the, the toy industry when I was seven years old. And, um, my mother, who's a psychology professor, positioned me in, in one of her studies. Uh, she filmed me and then she showed this film all over the world, right. <laughs> um, to subjects, uh, looking at me playing with, um, girl toys, uh, including Barbie and, you know, like, uh, uh, this kind of princess, uh, tiaras and things like that versus playing with boy toys. And, um, she studied just, you know, how people perceive, how kids perceive kids that are playing with gender aligned toys and all that. And all of these questions, you know, it's bigger than just this one study, but just, they have really big impl implications on our development and, yeah. you know, are just like our, our environments. So, um, you know, the, the, the more we get it right, the better off yeah. we are. Um, and we're not necessarily getting it right when we're using, um, the courtroom too often. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's really interesting. It actually ties back to, to a podcast that we just did recently about sort of the rise of, of new types of board games and, and sort of like how they're, how they're sort of reinventing aspects of storytelling and sometimes being able to tell different stories. And, and one of the things that came out of that is how much of that is actually coming from sort of smaller independent developers rather than sort of, you know, the bigger players. And it's kind of, kind of a whole, whole interesting space yeah. <laughs> uh, of things happening. But, um, uh, I, I've taken up more of your time than I than I promised to take up, but this is a really really interesting conversation, um, and and a really really interesting book, and 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 both this book and the last book. Uh, again, you know, uh, the new one is called "You Don't Own Me," and the 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 previous one was "Talent Wants to Be Free." They're both really really excellent, well written, really really you know hard to put down kinds of books. If you're interested in all the stuff, if you've been listening for you know almost the last hour or so, then uh, hopefully you are interested in these things i really recommend checking them out um and uh, uh thank you so much for for joining us on the on the podcast this was this was a really really interesting conversation thank you for having me sure and thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back uh soon with another podcast Grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Ha! So grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Ha! So grab a shovel and think of the tap.